0: Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of Interlinked, a global affairs podcast committed to help students develop a basic understanding of world affairs. With a special focus on the Indian socio-political climate, the podcast aims to contextualize our country in the backdrop of a changing world order. The theme for today's episode is Unpacking Gender and International Relations. And our guest for today is Professor Ananya Sharma who is a Professor of International Affairs at Ashoka University. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Professor, I'd like to start with a really broad question. Uh, International relations has been a discipline that originated from the West, and more importantly, has had the white male vision to its disposal. The ideas of sovereignty, just war, and so on, have originated from the experiences of a certain gender. So how has a discipline such as this tackled or evolved to co opt the ideas of gender?
1: And how has gender in turn redefined the subject in some sense? Oh, thank you for that question. Uh, I think when we think of international relations as a discipline, the story that we've often told is the story of IR through and its evolution through great debates, right? So you think of these three big debates that happened in critical junctures within the evolution of ir and how they've shaped our understanding of world politics the first great debate was basically happening after the end of first world war it was between realists and idealists and clearly there was a victor that emerged the realists right the second great debate was happening between 1950s 1960s between traditionalists and behavioralists. now this debate had to do more with methodology do you want to go with like the old school natural science way of exploring the world or do you want to use interpretive historical approaches to understand world politics now in this debate also clearly because behavioralism was on a rise so you did kind of go on to co-opt behavioralism within social sciences ir being no exception and the third big debate is where gender as a category of analysis even emerges within ir The third grade debate was between rationalists and reflectivists. And all critical scholars, including post-structurists, Marxists, right, uh, non-Western scholars of fire, post-colonial scholars, they all got clubbed together as reflectivists, right? So they had a particular approach towards world politics. So that is one way of looking at the disciplinary history, where only at a particular point or juncture in the evolution of the discipline which is late 1980s, the gender as a category became important for analysis, right? This says two things about the discipline. One is how powerful silences are within the discipline, whose voices get recognized and legitimately heard. And second, that the idea of disciplinary IR is very different from the discipline of IR, which is the actual world politics is really in no way mapping out the realities as it were disciplinary IR is the theories that we study to understand IR is no way is in no way kind of uh, equipped to deal with what qualifies as the realm of IR or world politics in a particular manner the last point I want to add here is about looking at IR through the prism of gender what does it do right so when we think of gender we're thinking of often gender the first like kind of misunderstanding is to think of gender through the prism of, say, feminism, right? So you think of gender as synonymous to feminism and that's deeply, deeply problematic. When you're thinking of the meaning of gender in IR, you have to think of various other categories or what I call is, like a lot of people use that term, intersectionality while understanding what this would would mean for world politics. So disability, right? Queer identity, race, class, all those identities would matter as much while understanding world politics, right? But we often think of it in terms of homogeneous abstract units. And that's why IR has not been able to tap into these other kind of variations of exploring the world in a much more deeper, nuanced manner.
0: That's quite interesting. Professor, one of the ways that gender manifests itself is through power relations. And that is where ideas of femininity and masculinity become important because they shape a lot of issues from trade to military alliances to strategic thinking. Uh, Can you speak a little about such power differentials, what they achieve and what achievement they stifle?
1: There are two ways of, uh, again, unpacking that question of femininity and masculinity. A, you have to understand that these are uh, there is value that is attached to both these terms, right? And that value might not be universal or have the same, like, kind of parlance across time and space, right? Second, when you think, so there's a clearly a provincial kind of undertone when you use these terms, you're using them in particular contexts and the meaning that they attach. The second, like, kind of big thing that you have to think about is the idea of, so, two broad themes, one, trade, and second, military alliances, right? I think it's also... Um, Kind of unfortunate that when we think of IR, our only two ways of thinking about the world is either through military or through economics of a particular kind, right? Now, for most part, mainstream IR is obsessed with clearly military, state, right? State formation and the idea of sovereignty. But it also indulges in something called as violence. Mm -hmm. And violence is very closely tied to bodily integrity. Yet how often do we speak about bodies in IR? Right? So violence, even though as an abstract term, is something that we're surrounded with. Right? If I had to give an example of the ways violence manifests itself, and um, this is a reading, brilliant reading by Lauren Wilcox. She speaks that whether it is torture in Guantanamo Bay right, or Abu Ghraib, right? whether it's the suicide bombers in Israel and Palestine or other parts of the world, right? whether it's precision bombing and use of UAVs, drone warfare, All of those are gendered techniques of which are gendered, right, to engage with world politics in a certain manner. And the most interesting, like sometimes you don't even have to think of bodily harm in like physical ways, is airport security assemblages. The way bodies are classified into cisgender normal bodies, right, and how threat appears there is quite interesting to investigate. So technology and surveillance are also telling us so much more about gender, and how and and the way it manifests itself in international politics so we uh, the conventional understanding is that you can think of uh violence or like uh, uh violence through bodies in like one way you can think of women indulging in violence in like three categories either as monsters whores or mothers right so mothers is in sacrificial violence monsters is she's deviant right like oh something gone wrong And then there's, of course, the whore, which is like sexual deprivation led to this violence. So you often use these essentialist categories to justify various kinds of violence. But I don't think there are neat binaries here. The second big point was about trade, right? There is enough literature now within IR and economics, various realms of economics, that speaks about gender as a category and analyzing economic uh, kind of impact of gender on world politics. And uh, V. Spike Peterson, uh, interestingly, speaks about something called as the RPV triad of understanding world politics, which is the reproductive, productive, and virtual economies and how they shape world politics. And the two words, and this is something that like struck me the most, the two words, the key terms that she talks about while she's talking about economics is one, the idea that now there is flexibilization of labor, right? So it's easily available to turn anybody's job into anybody else, right? So because it's flexible, right, you can hire women and then fire them even easily. So it's a changing the nature of marketplace in itself. And the second is informalization of markets, right? So both those factors are contributing to our economic understanding of the kind of trade relations, right? Like the kind of production capacities, the kind of consumption patterns that are happening in world politics in a particular manner. And the last thing that I want to speak about is foreign policy because that's such an integral component of what we teach within IR. And the two kind of uh, main inputs that I could think of, examples that I could think of where gender would matter is one, the one-child policy of China, right? Now, we don't even think of the geopolitical implications of such a gendered practice policy that was decided by state level, right? So it'd be interesting that if we go back... And unpack or unsettle ourselves by looking at like these various practices that we think of as very national, as very domestic, right? rather than thinking of their long-term gendered impacts in geopolitics.
0: There's a constructed linkage between biological sex and associated attributes, such as autonomy, strength and vulnerability. Leadership itself is looked at as a monolithic structure associated to men. So in that scenario, when women negotiate their gender identities in positions of power, we can look at gender in that way as well.
1: Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. And there are two ways here also that you could include like gendered analysis. One is not through leadership, but also how institutions, right? Institutions of global governance like the UN and other international organizations deal with the idea of gender. And there's there's a certain policy that's in play now, which is called gender mainstreaming, right? That you have to be like include more and more voices of women while you're dealing with certain issue areas. So whether it's education, health, access to public facilities, right? You're dealing with the idea of gender mainstreaming. But the second idea that's also interesting is uh, an evolution of a new form of uh, foreign policy, which is called feminist foreign policy. Sweden was the first country to kind of like go ahead and talk about it. And it'd be interesting to see what are the principles that these policies are being founded on? Are they fundamentally different Or as Fukuyama interestingly said, women in his foreign affairs article, it was titled Women in the Evolution of World Affairs, where he made an essentialist claim that because women are going to be leaders, world leaders in the future, he's writing in 1998, he said that we can hope for a more peaceful world, right? Now that is deeply, deeply problematic as a statement, right? And we need to understand the binaries or uh, the kind of essentialism that he's harping on to make that kind of analysis.
0: On what all fronts does gender become salient or on what all fronts should it become salient when, say, an international agreement or convention is designed? For instance, uh, previously I was talking to you about um, security studies and how um, people from non-IR backgrounds um, only look at um women and marginalization of women in terms of... Um, war or violence right and what are the other fronts or in what other ways gender plays a role when an international c- convention comes
1: into place so i'm thinking about something like uh, climate agreement when you're thinking of climate agreements right like when you're thinking of displaced populations i'm sure it impacts women as much as it impacts men right and they may be more vulnerable to certain kinds of situations more than women right like conflict that uh, uh, follows after, like, uh, mass displacement has happened, right, would therefore involve looking at that from a prism of gender and trying to understand what is it? What are the policy, like, kind of relevant changes that we can make while we're thinking of this issue, right? So, again, we don't just have to think about it in terms of displacement and refugees, but I'm sure, like, there are other kind of facets, whether it's development, right, whether it's the idea of human rights, right? All of those are categories that would benefit if we engage with gender while studying all these possible categories of analysis.
0: Uh, Now, Professor, we've been talking about gender as a broad term, but there exists a lot of heterogeneity in the way it is understood. So when we talk about women, for instance, there is often the idea of a Western woman versus versus the third world woman. So what do you think about the process of creating these categories to understand subgroups
1: and the consequence of creating these categories? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So two things here. I think uh, uh, there's a brilliant quote by Sela Ben-Habib when she says that every time you think of the universal, the universal is always surreptitiously quoted in the language of the dominant, right? So anything that passes off as universal is deeply, deeply problematic because it holds in its language the voices of the dominant or uh, 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 the people who are in power. So it's interesting for therefore one, see, what are the interventions that have been made by, uh, and we don't use the term West and non-West any longer, we actually use the word first world and uh, one world and two third worlds to talk about West and non-West. Now, one-third world exists in the two-third worlds, which is the rich exist with the poor. And there's a two-third world in the one-third world as well. So it'll be interesting to also use certain terminologies to express that kind of earlier distinction between West and non-West. And clearly, various scholars, whether it's Chandra Talpare Mohanti, Sara Ahmed, Leela Abu Lugodh, uh, jaspeer Jasbir Puar, who are women of color, who've made some significant contributions to the discipline of IR, right? Whether it's about terrorism uh, and terrorism studies, whether it's about understanding practices within neoliberal framework that can be oppressive, which is like an integral part of writing for all these women, whether institutional practices that are oppressive to women, I think or a certain conceptualization of Islam as being oppressive and the West being savior for these Islamic women. Is also a very masculine gendered relationship that uh, these women kind of want to puncture through their writings. So maybe engaging in scholars uh, outside of the realm of the one-thirds world would be interesting for us to open up our horizons about IR as well.
0: Lastly, a related question on where we stand in terms of women in academia and what is the role of women in academia in 2019 and what has been your
1: experience with the same? Okay. Uh, there are a couple of things here. One, uh, I think there's a brilliant project that's been carried out in the University of Sussex. It's called "Women in International Political Thought," right? And that was one of the central questions that I think the first generation IR scholars, like women scholars, were also asking. It's a very straightforward, innocuous kind of question, right? Where are the women? Right. So that project goes back tracing the history of international political thought, and like kind of revealing to us who are the women scholars that were important and why are they forgotten in in that sense, right? Another interesting thing here is a a statement by Kimberly Hutchings. She says, uh, "androcentricism slash masculinity is often used as a cognitive shortcut to understand anything about IR, right? And I think that's uh, quite telling about the state of affairs within IR itself. Uh, There are two ways of looking at this. One, who do you read, right? Or... What do you prescribe for teaching within classrooms? We should definitely take a look at our curricula and be like, why aren't there enough women scholars here? Uh, I think uh, uh, in the West there was a movement that was called, "Why is my curricula so white?" Right. So it'll be interesting for us to be more self-reflective in terms of deciding uh, um, what is it that we assign for students to engage with and read, because that's deeply, deeply political as well, right? Second. Uh, a way in which you can think of women in academia is various other kinds of opportunities, right? So who gets published, right? Like what are we citing, right? Because citing is not just assigning a reading. When you write a term paper or you submit something, you also cite. And citing is also an exercise of power relations that you, you consider somebody as a legitimate authority on that, right? And therefore, it's important to consider the politics of citing as well. And third, I think, is an interesting term that Pare Mahanti uses, is the idea of a scholar slash activist, right? Hyphen activist, scholar hyphen activist. I think that's interesting. I think what has often happened now in the way we approach uh, uh, academia or theory is that we think of it in terms of ivory tower with like very little interaction with the outside world. And if you have to make significant kind of contributions to the discipline, you have to kind of merge the practice side of it with the theory side of it. So it'll be important for us to remember like those kind of interventions, like the best, the most kind of puncturing kind of interventions have happened from people who've actually done groundwork, who've actually participated in various kinds of protest movements against various kinds of oppressive hegemonic regimes and then written about their experiences. And I think that'll be a significant way forward within IR as well.
0: Thank you, Professor. That was really
1: insightful. Thank you for your time.